God is so good. Despite the fact that you and I are sinners. I know sin is not such a popular word these days. People think it's judgmental. People think it's also 1950s Christian. But you know and I know that we are deeply flawed people. And I know in my life there is no way that I deserve the salvation that I've received through Jesus Christ. Of course, that's the whole point, isn't it? None of us deserve the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So, what's your relationship with sin? Close. An honest man. He is a retired magistrate after all, so we would hope he's an honest man. We have a love-hate relationship with sin. Sin seems to be with us so often and then other times it disappears and then it comes whoompa, comes back when we least expect it. Why can't I have victory over my sin once and for all? Why can't it be gone once and for all? Why does temptation have to keep coming my way? Surely by now, surely by now, I must be rid of my sin. But you see, that struggle is not just you. That struggle is the struggle of all believers. And it's exactly what the Bible teaches about our relationship to sin. How can I live in victory over sin? That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, you might say, <clears throat> well, you know, does it really matter that much? Some people um, have struggled with sin so long that they've given up. After all, once saved, always saved, right? That's the, the, the mantra of many a Christian. Let's see what the Bible has to say about what the impact of sin is going to be on the life of anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8.13 is, is the main text. We're just going to go to verse 13 for the moment. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, which is the title of today's message, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Those are not my words. They're the words of a 17th century theologian by the name of John Owen who was something of a nonconformist and wrote a wonderful book called, with this buzzy title, Mortification of Sin. Yeah, if he was writing it today, we'd probably work on the title a little bit, right? We'd get some people involved. Mortification of Sin. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Not my words, not John Owen's words, but straight out at the Bible. Let's look at those questions. How can I overcome sin and explore them some more? But first, let's pray. Father, sin for most of us is a really touchy topic because we each have that one or two sins in our lives that seem to keep coming back and we're ashamed of them and we wish it weren't so, but it is. So, Father, as we talk about the sin in our lives, would you just open our hearts, Lord God? Soften our hearts 
to receive what you have to say today in Jesus' name. Now, let me make one thing clear. I am not going to talk today about working harder at being a better person. Because if you and I could work harder to be a better person to the point where God would accept us, we would have no need for Jesus on the cross. And there's no way that you or I are going to work hard enough to put down the sin in our lives in a way that pleases God. Can we go back to that verse? And I want to emphasise three words. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, here are the three words, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All other ways of killing sin other than by the Spirit, are completely in vain. Writes John Owen, Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention to the end of self-righteousness is the soul and substance of false religion in this world. You and I cannot make ourselves acceptable to God by working harder at being a better Christian. So how are we going to do this? There's a verse in the Old Testament which really strikes deeply home to me. Um, it comes from Leviticus chapter 20, which is part of the Torah, part of the Jewish law. It's Leviticus 20, chapters, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. And it goes like this. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. For I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Three parts to that. But let's first place that verse in context. It comes sandwiched between a discussion of idolatry, which of course offends God greatly, telling the Israelites that idolatry is wrong, and immediately after this verse comes a discussion of sexual immorality, including incest and bestiality and a whole bunch of other horrible things. Right in between those two discussions, which turn me down just a, a wee bit, comes this verse, Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes to do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, there's three words in there, consecrate, holy, and sanctify. We're just saying about being set apart to do God's will. That's what it means to be holy, to be different, to be clean, to be pure, to be holy, set apart, separate from the world, to do the will of God. But interestingly, consecrate, holy, and sanctify all come from the same root Hebrew word. They're almost all identical words. So what does it mean to consecrate yourself? Back on the 18th of October 1998, does that ring a bell for anyone here? Should do. It's the day you opened this church. The day this building was opened. And I don't know what happened in the service. You were here. Who else was here for that? Anyone else? Yeah, a few of you are here. Somehow this building was consecrated. I'm not quite sure what you did, but you set this building apart to serve God. 
It's not in any sense spiritually a special place the way the temple was in the Old Testament. But hey, this is here to do God's will. So we don't allow drunken parties to happen here. We don't allow worship services from other religions to happen here. We don't allow immorality to happen here. Why? Because this place is consecrated unto God. It's set apart for God. On that very same day, I was busy being consecrated too. It's the day I married my wife, Jackie. So I was being set apart from this world, consecrated from this world, for her. Consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart and be holy. Well, that's really easy to say, isn't it? Come on, guys, just be holy. Just get over it, move on. Be holy for crying out loud. Keep my statutes and do them, (laughs) if only. You know, the whole of the Old Testament is the story of how Israel couldn't keep the statutes that God set before them. That's why they're called Israel, which means struggles with God. They couldn't do it. Keep my statutes and do them. Now, this is the last bit that I love. For I am the Lord who sanctifies you. We consecrate ourselves. We set ourselves apart for God. But it is God who sanctifies us. It is God who makes us holy. We put sin to death by the Spirit, not by the strength of our flesh. Just as well. Because none of us has it within us to put sin to death. Now, whenever you read therefore in Scripture, what have you got to ask? What's the therefore therefore? Why does it say, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy? Well, what does the therefore point back to? Look at the immediate previous verse. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and I will cut him off from among his people. This is really serious stuff. Now you might say, yeah, but Bernie, that was the Old Testament. You know, you're being very legalistic here about this. That's Old Testament stuff and and it doesn't really apply to us now. All right. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we, remember, this is being written to believers, Christian believers, right? For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's those of you who believe in Jesus, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So if you are someone who says, once saved, always saved, you can't just strike this inconvenient thing out of the Bible, right? It's there. I didn't put it there. God put it there. So how are we to understand our salvation? Are you secure in your salvation? I am. Jesus died for me. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. And because his blood was spilt on that cross, I am saved. Because of what Jesus did, God will never, ever reject us if we put our trust in Jesus. But if we decide to keep on sinning, if we start to say, well, you know, it's just the way I am and and to hell with it, eventually our heart grows cold. Eventually our heart grows hard. 
Eventually, we turn around and we walk away from God, and God is never going to stop us from walking away from him. Will he try to bring us back? Yeah. I walked away from God in my teen years. And it wasn't until age 36 that he brought me back again. But I did walk away. Make no mistake about that. God will never push us away. But through our sin, we can walk away. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. See, we want the putting to death of sin in our lives, just the way it's said there in the Scriptures, to be a one-time event. God, let's remove the tumour, let's have the chemotherapy, let's be done with it. Let's be in remission with it. I want to be finished with my sin. Do you want to be finished with your sin? I don't want to feel angry, which is my Achilles heel, when someone does something stupid on the road. I don't want to feel that. But listen again to that scripture. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The word put to death is the word mortification, to kill. In the Greek, the tense of that verb is present active. Which means if you put to death the sin today, and you know what? If you go back and read that tomorrow, it will still be present active. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and it will still be present active. So it's not a passive sit back and let it happen. This is something that we need to do every day. I do like the Amplified Translation here, which says, if you habitually kill sin by the Spirit, because that's what a habit is, isn't it? It's something you do over and over and over again. And that's exactly what the tense of the verb here implies. Put to death, mortify sin day after day after day. Now, here's a practical example, which comes immediately from the previous chapter, and some of you may have heard me read this and speak from this, this verse before, because it's one of my favourite passages in the New, New Testament. Paul writes of himself, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I end up doing the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the Lord that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but I just can't seem to be able to do it. Does that, anyone relate to that? I do. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Can I ask you, what tense is he writing in, past, present or future? Present tense. The dude who wrote almost half the books of the New Testament is speaking in present tense about the same problem that you and I have. The sin that dwells in us. Surely Paul should be on a different plane, you know. God used him amazingly. I love that slide that came up about the Romans Bible study on Zoom. Can you imagine trying to explain to Paul that we would be doing a Bible study on Zoom in a place called Australia? 
but crying out loud. That's bizarre. God's used Paul in an amazing way. Yet, here we are. Sin dwells in him. He is still torn between what's doing right and what's doing wrong. This is not going away, people. Sin will try to bring you down every day. So what's the answer? Let's read on. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are feeling condemned about your sin, the struggle that you're having, the same as Paul, the grace of God for you will never run out. The mercy of God for you will never run out. You need never run and hide as Adam and Eve did in the garden. You can always go to God. And because of what Jesus did for you, what Jesus did for me, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some translations add in that verse, by the way, and who walk according to the Spirit. Um, That's been found to be a false addition um, through the, the science of textual criticism, which I won't go into now. There is no condition on that, is what I'm saying. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. How good, who drives here? Who's got a driver's license? When was the last time you drove once? I'll ask Paul not to answer this question because I know his answer. Once without being one kilometre over the speed limit. Like never. <laughs> never. You are not good at following rules. I am not good at following rules. Paul, when he was a magistrate, never went over the speed limit, which used to drive me crazy. There's always an exception. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he has condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those, now here it is again, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Again, Paul is writing to believers here. If we continue to sin, if we continue to be enticed by sin, it will end in death. I'm going to skip down now. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who belongs, who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. People, that is real good news. That is real good news. You are not on your own in this battle. The Holy Spirit, if you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. Just wrap your mind around that. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? That the Spirit of God is in us. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Again, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you ache for Jesus, if you want to live your life for him, and you're struggling with something, like, like Paul was struggling with something, the power of the Holy Spirit is in you. The forgiveness of the cross is for you. It's just when we start giving up and start saying, you know what, that's just my brand of sin and that's just the way I'm going to live the rest of my life, that we end up drifting away from God. And some even walk away from God. The Bible talks about those. The New Testament talks about those people. Because sin dwells in us, sin every day will try to defeat us. It is the duty of every believer every day to put sin to death in their flesh. The constant duty of the believer. For the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.17, are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these two are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you ought to do. It's amazing how often this stuff comes up in Scripture. And, and we kind of dawdle through life, you know, and we think, oh, well, you know, I blew it today and I'll ask God forgiveness and I'll blow it again tomorrow. And we kind of, we're flippant with our sin. But over and over and over again, the New Testament implores us to put sin to death. Sin does not, this is John Owen, by the way, I've kind of made it a little bit easier to digest. Sin does not only still abide in us, but is still acting, still labouring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. When sin lets us alone, we think that we might let sin alone. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, listen to this bit, since sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters for the most part run deep when they are still, so ought our efforts against it to be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even where there is least suspicion of it. You, you know what it's like. Sometimes you're having, a, like a, you're having a really good stretch with your sin. I haven't been angry at anyone since eight this morning. It's going really well today. And sometimes you might go days, weeks and months. And then all of a sudden, boom, it happens. So you see, sin is always acting, always conceiving, always tempting, and always seducing, writes Owen. There is not a day when sin does not either foil or is foiled, where sin does not prevail or is prevailed upon, and it will be so for as long as we live in this world. It's exactly what the scriptures that we just looked at teach. Get a revelation, people. Temptation is not going away. It's just not. God calls us onto a battlefield. Anyone who doesn't believe that their Christian walk is a battlefield is missing the point. If the enemy can't drag me out of God's kingdom, what's the point in him tempting me? 
So let's get a new revelation of sin today. It is deep graven in our flesh, mine and yours. Paul even talks about boasting in his weakness. I'm really open about the struggles that I've had in my life with, with anger. When you're brought up in a German household and you go to the Royal Military College Duntroon and you serve as an army officer, you're going to be one of those sorts of people, right? Pray for my wife Jackie later. And so I have to deal with that sin, that temptation not to rip someone's head off. And I'm really good with words. I'm really good at ripping people's heads off. Really good. I have to deal with that. I boast in that because you know what? It's the spirit dwelling in me who's being the one who's changing me from the person I used to be to the person I am today. And hopefully the person I am in three years and five years and ten years if God grants me that long on this earth. Clearly the Bible teaches that sin is here to stay. At least the temptation to sin is here to stay. I want to give you a couple of answers for dealing with sin. The first one is really practical and the second one is, is more on the spiritual side. Can I ask you please to put up, this, the, whoever's behind the slides there, to put up the green, sorry, the anger slide. Okay, we're going to do some practical exercise now. We're in a workshop, which means you do the work and I go shopping, right? That's how it works. I want you, now I'm pretty sure I haven't upset any of you today. Have I upset anyone today? Okay. I want you now, in this instant, to be angry with me. Come on. Be angry with me. Be really, really, really angry with me. Who's succeeding? You just can't switch your emotions on and off like that, can you? You just can't change your emotions like that. Pop up the next slide. Okay, I want you to think green. I'm sorry for those who are colorblind. I want you to think green. Keep thinking green. Think green, think green, think green, think green. Next slide. Keep thinking green, keep thinking green. Keep looking at the slide. Keep thinking green, keep thinking green. How well can you hold green in your head when you're staring at purple? For a few seconds, for a little while. But eventually you go purple, right? You can't help it. So it's actually hard to change your thoughts as well. It's not only hard to change your emotions, I would argue almost impossible to change your emotions in an instant. It's very hard to change what you're thinking. Next slide, please. Okay, everyone put their right hand up in the air. Barring any rotator cuff problems, not one of you had a problem putting your hand up in the air. So it turns out that it's really almost impossible to change your emotions. It's quite difficult to change your thoughts. But it's actually rather easy to change your actions. And in that space when you're being tempted, let's say that your thing is when you feel oppressed by people, you go to the fridge and you eat that cream bun, right? You just, you're, you're relying on cream buns to keep you going. And you know you shouldn't be eating this stuff, but you are. And this desire starts to rise up in you. You know, you start to think about that cream bun. Oh, that's good. I'm going to think about something else. But it doesn't work because you go back and you think about the cream bun, right? 
What's the easiest way to overcome that temptation? Go and put a lead on the dog and go for a walk. Do something different. Intervene in that space between the temptation, which then gives birth to sin. You know what your triggers are. You know what your temptations are. You know what your particular sin is. Why do you think they say when you're angry, count to ten before you speak? This is an action intervention between the temptation and the action. And so, when I start to feel anger rising up in me, I get up, I breathe deeply, I do not send an email. I've only sent two angry emails in my time and both of them caused me a whole bunch of grief. Don't ever send angry emails, just a tip. And there's one scripture that I remember and I read through that scripture in my mind. Be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man produceth not the righteousness of God. That's my scripture. That's for me. God put it in the Bible for me. That's my action intervention. And back when I struggled with food, it would be literally to make a cup of tea or make a cup of coffee or take the dog for a walk. You have an amazing brain. Nah, maybe the rest of us don't always see that. But you do have an amazing brain. And your brain is able to rewire itself. This is what habits are about. If you have a stimulus and an action, stimulus and an action, stimulus and an action, and you follow the same path every day in response to that stimulus, you will create a neural pathway that leads you down that. Ever heard of brain plasticity? This is what this is about. Your brain is capable of rewiring itself. If you have a stimulus and you create a different action in response, stimulus and a different action, stimulus and a different action, your brain will rewire itself. I remember when I went to give up smoking. Back in 1981, I gave up smoking. For the next six months, this is in the days, people, for you, all you young'uns, when you're allowed to sit at your desk and smoke. Right? In the bad old days. Um, I would still be reaching for my top drawer, trying to get a, a, a packet of fags out. I'd be going out and going, I hope I've got my fags on me. Right? You have to find a different thing to do when that desire to smoke comes upon you. And your brain will rewire itself. But if you could do that all by your little lonesome, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit, would you? If you could rewire your brain all by your little lonesome, you would not need the power of the, God, of, of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. I know in my life when I don't spend time in God's word I become weak in my response to the stimuli that set me off. It's a problem being a Bible teacher because you know, I, I teach the Bible for a living which is a real blessing, which is a really amazing thing to get to do because I'm in God's word all the time. But when I go on holidays, as I did the week before last with my wife to Tasmania, you know what? You really want to put your work away, right? And go and read some swashbuckling adventure, Jack Reacher book or something, right? And I have found 
on holidays, when I do that, just to get away from work, my anger level goes up. I can plot it. If you are someone who believes in Jesus, if you are someone who wants to be set free from sin, then brothers and sisters, be in the Word of God every day. You don't have to read the Bible in a year. I have never read the Bible in a year. I can't do that. I sometimes get hung up in five verses for weeks on end because God's got me there. Find a way of being a man or a woman of God's Word every day. Five minutes, one verse, one scripture. Read it, think about it. God, what are you saying to me? Five minutes, pray with God. Ten minutes. Is ten minutes every day too much to ask? I don't think so. Yet there are many Christians who have never opened their Bible for weeks and months on end. If you're a regular here, you've heard me say this before. Which is more important, praying or reading the Bible? Charles Spurgeon answered, which is more important, inhaling or exhaling? Like, both are important. Do both. Find a way to do both and spend time with God every morning. Lord, I consecrate myself to you today. I set myself apart to you today for you are the Lord my God. I so want to keep your statutes and do them. Lord, you are the one who sanctifies me. Lord, be there in my moment of temptation. I yearn to do your will. I yearn to glorify Jesus in my life. I yearn to be holy, but I can't in my own strength. Lord, do that for me. I'm setting myself apart for you today. But I need you to show up because I can only put sin to death by your spirit, not in my own strength.